Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy, and today I'm talking to Erin Pepler. She's a freelance writer who lives in the greater Toronto area with her husband and two kids. Erin's writing has appeared in Today's Parent, Romper, Scary Mommy, and many, many more. And she is also the author of Send Me Into the Woods Alone, Essays on Motherhood, which she's here to talk about today. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. We were just talking about, I love this book, the books of essays in which you feel deeply seen. Thank you. <laughs> Are my very favorite kind of book. And we have these weird things in common, I feel like you and I, not living in Canada, but for example, we were just talking about before we recorded how we both discovered strangely that our eyesight improved during pregnancy. Like everything changes during pregnancy, including your eyesight, which yours also got better during pregnancy. Yeah, which I think is not as common as it getting worse because obviously when you're pregnant, your hormones are raging and everything is just all over the place. There's so many changes. I knew things could happen like your foot, your shoe size could change mm-hmm. and all these random things. <laughs> I had no idea your vision could change for better or worse. So after my son was born, I was squinting so hard with my glasses on and I thought, oh my goodness, I Googled it. And I was like, well, I'm going blind. I'm losing my vision because my glasses are on and I'm squinting so badly through them and I can't get any clear vision of anything. So after the optometrist, they're like, no, 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 your, your prescription's way too strong now because your eyes have gotten so much better. And so that was nice after a brutal pregnancy. It was like a little gift. <laughs> a little gimme. Yeah. And it's so strange. I feel like it's a metaphor for the whole sort of pregnancy experience, which you talk about so well in your book. I'm going to be throwing lots of quotes from this book at you and <laughs> some of my favorite moments. But pregnancy is where the book sort of starts. Yes. And you, I'm going to quote you, this is a very, pregnancy is an objectively strange experience. It's just deeply strange and it changes you in so many ways. Tell us a little bit more about your pregnancies and how transformative they were. Yeah, mine were not typical. I think anybody in any situation can have like a strange pregnancy or a pregnancy that feels really strange to them because it is, it's a foreign experience. Like it's an experience you've never gone through. You're growing a human being inside of your body. You can't see what's happening. You feel things and you don't know if they're good or they're bad. Like everything about it is 
really just a lot of trust in your body, which can be hard. So for me, I had hyperemesis gravidarum and I had it twice. So quick context for anyone who doesn't know. So that's the one that was kind of, people know about it more now because Amy Schumer and Kate Middleton, like the Duchess of one of the <laughs> one of the <laughs> Duchesses. She is. The Princess of Wales, I think she is now. Very beautiful, but she threw up all the time through each of her three pregnancies. Yes, because it can happen to anybody. So essentially you have just debilitating nausea and vomiting. It can be something that only happens for a few months, or it can happen your whole pregnancy, and mine lasted the entire pregnancy. So for nine months I threw up so many times every day to the point where I hurt muscles in my stomach. I burst blood vessels in my face. I was on Zofran, which is a drug that they give to people who are having chemotherapy to combat the nausea. Like I went way past Declectin. I don't know if you have Declectin in the States. It might be a different brand name. No, I don't know if I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. It's an anti-nausea drug. They give pregnant women. But I know what Zofran is. I mean, it's hardcore. Yeah. But Zofran and it's hardcore and it was, it's just awful. So you just can't function. And the first time it happened, I was able to kind of cocoon and hide and, you know, just kind of get through it. But then the second time you have a toddler. Baby. And it gets worse. I've heard that it gets actually progressively worse with each pregnancy. Or is it just that you have babies to take care of? I think for some people, mine did for sure. So it was definitely worse the second time. And then there's like this sort of, you know, triple flip on top of that, that you're experiencing this really intense and unpleasant side effect in the middle of this objectively strange experience, as you say. But to the outer world, you are tasked with presenting nothing but sweet gratitude and yes. and blessed peace, right? And and that and you really talk about this in the book too, so well and so clearly that pregnant women are assigned to sort of downplay their discomfort and minimize their pain. Yeah. And I mean, any woman, I think, knows that that's how women are treated by society in general, like pregnant or not. It's like, you know, don't become a problem. Don't talk about your pain. Just kind of push everything down and put on a brave face and, you know, just make everyone else's lives easier. And pregnancy is like, that's a really big part of it. So when people go like, how are you feeling? Instead of saying like, oh, I threw up so hard today that I peed my pants and it wasn't the first time that happened. And I live in an apartment that doesn't have private laundry. So now I have to go down to my shared laundry. Like, you know, you don't say stuff like that. You go like, oh, you know what? I'm not feeling great, but I'm so excited about the baby. I can't wait. So blessed. Right, right. And that part is true. Like I was so excited to have a baby. I was so excited to be a mom. I wanted kids more than anything, but that didn't change the fact that like being pregnant was horrible for me. It was a means to an end. Like I did it because I wanted the babies. I didn't do it because I was like glowing and taking maternity shots in a field and feeling beautiful and like empowered. And if that happens for other people, I think that's awesome. Like that's great luck, but I think it doesn't happen for a lot of people and they don't talk about it because they compare themselves to those women who are, you know, beautiful and glowing and going to pregnancy yoga or feeling like, you know, the ones who are like, maybe I'll be a surrogate just to experience this again and do it for someone else. And I was like, oh, that's cool for you. But like, I would die. <laughs> are you kidding? Right. I had comparatively peaceful and calm pregnancies, but yeah, it wasn't a blissful experience. But I think you're really onto something, this idea that we do feel the pressure to perform it as if it is, because that's what people want to hear. And they certainly don't want to hear that it's not. And you do think that it must be only you yeah, who's not loving every moment, who's finding this all a little weird. It's very isolating because I think there is that kind of onus on pregnant women to 
almost be like start presenting themselves as a mom, which is obviously equated with like selflessness and sacrifice and a lot of these things. You're on something. Yeah. I absolutely think that there's a connection between how you deal with your pregnancy in public and how you're perceived. You know, like if you're complaining, like not even complaining, I don't want to say complaining. If you're acknowledging how hard it is and awful it is. Speaking the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. In some situations like mine, it's almost just like, well, how is she going to handle having kids? Ah, Yes. So it's a very strange connection, but I've seen it so many times. And I think it's just, it's another way that we kind of like control women and their bodies and what they can say. And it's just a very strange, oppressive way to treat people. And it happens all the time. Another thing that you and I, one of the many small things we had in common is that during my pregnancies like you, I experienced a lot of insomnia. This is probably a lot less. And not like I'm exhausted and I can't sleep. Like I'm not tired at all. I was up like doing my taxes in the middle of the night at two in the morning, just wasn't tired. And I would bring it to my OBGYN and he just would always say, well, your body's just getting you ready for the baby to be born. There's never any, they're not going to give a pregnant woman sleeping pills, I guess, but there was never any, hmm, let's see what we can do about that to make that better for you. It's like, well, that it needs to be that way because your your body is now in service of something else. So, yep. Yeah, you're a vessel at that you're point. You're a vessel, right, right. Yeah, right. absolutely. So, no, the empathy is not necessarily there from everybody in the medical community or everybody in our personal lives. I mean, I have a great circle of support around me and my husband's amazing and my family. And I still felt very isolated because how do you explain to somebody what it's like to throw up 25 times a day and like lie on the bathroom floor and just at the end of the day, be like, all right, I survived. I'm going to do this again tomorrow. (laughs) And know that there's months of that. (laughs) Like it really, really is hard to get across to anybody how isolating and difficult that is. And then the baby comes. And speaking of objectively strange experiences, I'm going to uh, quote you again here. You say like, you know, when in the pregnancy and of course during the birth, you're extremely well monitored. There's all kinds of beeping things on you as there should be, I guess. But then you say, once the baby's out, you just go home and resume life like you always have, but with a baby. And yes. you're just sort of sent on your way. And that is also objectively strange. It is for sure. I mean, I felt I had wanted kids my whole life and I had, I'm the oldest daughter. I'm the oldest cousin on both sides of my family. Ah, another thing we have in common, oldest daughter, oldest cousin. Yep. And I worked in a daycare all through high school and university or at least through all of university. So I was always with kids and I worked in the infant room. So I was like changing diapers with little babies. They were all six months and up, but I had so much experience with babies and I felt really confident about the logistics of babies. Like, you know, like I know what to do when they're crying. I know roughly like what how to feed them and when they need to be fed and how to put them down for a nap. I could put down 10 babies for a nap at the daycare and get them all to sleep. But then you have your own baby and you're like, my one baby won't sleep. Like it's totally different. It's a whole other ball game. And for me, I was thrilled to take my daughter home. But I also like remember walking out of the hospital with my firstborn and going like, nobody's checking anything. Nobody's <laughs> like making sure this is my baby. Like I'm just leaving this hospital with this human that I didn't walk in here with. And now I'm going to take her home and just like raise her to adulthood. And it felt way too casual. (laughs) And so I always joke, I'm like, I don't want it to be this thing where we're all getting like checked uh, thoroughly and papered on the way out of the hospital and make it really formal. But it just felt weird. (laughs) Some middle ground might be useful, right? Yeah, like maybe a package that's like, here's some tips. Maybe I bet some hospitals probably do do that. Probably do. Yeah. Like the mimeographed like many times over, you know, you can barely read what it says anymore. What is a baby? You have one now. (laughs) I'm talking to Erin Pepler. She is the author of Send Me Into the Woods Alone, Essays on Motherhood. And we'll be right back. 
Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro-aunt at this (laughs) point. Our family has seen a lot of babies, and as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, when you've got kids, as just about everybody listening to this right now does, you're probably looking at what they eat and seriously wondering how they could possibly be getting all of the vitamins and minerals they need to grow big and strong. That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need. And yes, Even your picky eaters will approve. I know mine does. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables. Then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals to help support our kids' growing brains and bodies. And Haya vitamins are sent straight to your door, which means you set it and forget it and give yourself one less thing to worry about. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash fresh. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H, HayaHealth.com slash fresh to get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Aaron, this book, I'm going to quote one of your lovely blurbs, that it swivels between the funny and the dead serious, this essay collection, as does motherhood, right? Motherhood swivels daily between the hilarious and the more difficult. And that's why it's such a good book. And you talk very openly about your anxiety as a parent and how it manifests. Can you tell us when you sort of started recognizing it as part of your parenting experience? Yeah, for me, it was really separation anxiety. So I was not anxious about anything when I had the baby with me. So, and this is true, I'll say the baby because I'm thinking back to the first time I had a child, like my first experience. And if I was holding my daughter or had her in the stroller or was like within sight of her, 
I felt fine. But then I would put her in her crib at night and I would lie down in my bed and I would have nightmares about everything bad that could happen to her. And they'd be ridiculous. They weren't realistic nightmares 90% of the time. Like I had one that my mother took the baby on a roller coaster. And like, it was like stuff like that, but I would wake up like shaking and crying. And then I'd feel stupid because what a ridiculous thing to stress out about. But when you're sleep deprived and your hormones are resettling and you have a history of anxiety like I do, it would manifest in these horrible nightmares. But then when I would say them out loud, I'd be like, I sound ridiculous. This is not something anybody's going to take seriously. But I would wake up uh, shaking and crying and so anxious and not be able to sleep because I would have these visions of like my daughter flying off a roller coaster. So at what point did it become like, oh, this might be more than I can handle? And what did you do about it? I don't know if I'm the best uh, role model because (laughs) I didn't get help. I didn't recognize how anxious I was really until it had passed. And at that point, I was like, oh, I should have gotten Uh, some help uh with this. uh And I think that maybe stems from having coped with anxiety in other ways throughout my life where I was just like, oh, I have some coping mechanisms. I can maybe deal with this. And then babies do get bigger and they sleep a little better. And I was getting a little more sleep and that would help. So like inch by inch, things just kind of settled and got better. I think it's way more important to just go get help. Like it's a better idea to go get help. If you're super anxious and you're not sleeping and it's affecting your life, like absolutely. Like, you know, find a family doctor, find a therapist, talk to them. That's what I should have done in retrospect. But fortunately my situation was mild to moderate enough that I could cope with it. And I'm really fortunate that that's all it was because it isn't like that for everybody. No, I didn't have anxiety, but I did have a kid who ended up having reflux. And so his sleep deprivation and mine were extreme. And again, same kind of thing. I mean, I want to sort of absolve you. Like, if only you had told one medical professional you were feeling a little anxious, I'm sure everything would have been terrific because that's not necessarily true at all, right? That we are, women are, again, patted on the head, said, well, it's baby blues, mom. And in my case was like, well, babies cry, mommy. And they kept sending me home. And it was, in my own case, it was my baby who's 20. Now, by the way, this is, it all works out. But at the time, he was about nine weeks old. It was the weekend of his baptism. And both my mother and my mother-in-law took me aside and said, something's wrong with this baby. And that's when I could go back to the doctor and be like, both the grandmothers said, there's something wrong. He cries too much. And that's then I got referred out to a specialist. And yeah, there was something wrong. And like I said, he's fine now. But the instinct is when I think a new mother is struggling to tell her, you got this mama, right? Instead of saying, well, what do you mean? Tell me more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or how can I help? Right, right, right. It's just like, you can handle this. You've got this. Look what a super, you're a superstar. I don't know how you do it. It's all those things, right? And then you're like, but I'm not doing it. Things are bad. I need help. (laughs) So it's very difficult. Sort of like the low grade anxiety. I think many of us can identify with that, that you feel as a parent. You still feel as a parent. You talk about it in the book. Oh, for sure. Like crossing this day. You're a cross at the crosswalk, sort of a a mom, and you recognize that about yourself. And that's not all bad, right? As my co-host Margaret likes to say, the anxious bunny survives, that it's, it is a, a protective mechanism. Yeah. But what sort of boundaries or parameters do you put on it for yourself? Like, how do you know, like, this is a good amount of worry, this isn't? Do you even think of it that way? Oh, I definitely do. I have, this is kind of like embarrassing to admit, but I have certain friends in my life who I look at them, I know they're great parents. And if I'm feeling super anxious about letting my kids have a little more freedom or do something that makes me uncomfortable, I look at those parents and go, wait, are they letting their kids do it? Because if they are, and I trust their judgment so much, 
And I know that objectively, they are less anxious than me and very smart and very loving parents and not irresponsible, that if they're allowing this, there's a good chance this is just me being anxious versus a realistic thing I have to put boundaries around. So there are things I'm very conscious not to be like a helicopter mom or helicopter parent because both parents can do it. But it takes like a conscious effort of me going okay, they deserve more freedom. They deserve more privacy. They, you know, it was little things like letting them go to the park alone for the first time. And like when they start walking to school by themselves and then just those little things that I think a lot of parents go like, oh, that's freedom. That's amazing that they can walk themselves to school now. I would be stricken with horrible anxiety about it. Not just like a little nervous. I would be so anxious about it. But then again, like over time, I'm like, that's the thing they do now. And it doesn't bother me at all, really. It wasn't like, oh, a couple of days in and I feel good. It took some time. <laughs> and that worry can feel additive. I'm going to read you a quote from the book. You say, I feel like the stress that I feel keeps my family safe. Like if I somehow lost all sense of tension and foreboding, the worst would happen because I would no longer be on guard. My complacency will be the death of us all. Well, I, I certainly identify with that, right? Like you need me to worry about this stuff so that none of it will happen. Yeah, but it, it's like you were just saying, it's that nervous bunny thing where I feel like if I get really lax, then who is making sure everybody's okay? And it's not because my husband's irresponsible. He's very responsible. But I think it's those years of being the primary parent because we both work full-time now. But for years when the kids were little, we had made the decision that I would stay home and work part-time and work freelance and really light freelance hours. Like I'm still freelance, but I'm full-time. So back in the day when he was commuting and gone 12 hours a day, and I was kind of working like around naps and in the evenings, like that was my responsibility throughout the day. I was the parent making all the decisions. And when he was present, he was amazing, but he was gone 12 hours a day. So I think a little of it stems from that being like, I'm the person responsible for these kids. And my kids are 19 months apart. So... Oh, oh my gosh, mine too. I have three kids, but my oldest two are 19 months apart. It's an intense couple of years. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, the two under two. And... I mean, they're amazing kids, but like, yeah, I had a son who had some gastro issues and colic and he was my second, but like the crying for sure with that. And my daughter was um, considered like borderline low birth weight. Like she was full term, but because of the hyperemesis and everything, she was like a five pound, 18 inch baby. She was like a little doll. Like you see those 18 inch dolls and go like, that's smaller than a newborn. And I'm like, that was the size <laughs> my child was. And she was five <laughs> pounds. Um, we took out my preemie clothes for this full-time baby. So yeah, they, and because she was low birth weight, she had to feed constantly. So when we were just talking about the sleep deprivation, it was like every 60 to 90 minutes breastfeeding and she couldn't take a bottle. She had, um, what's it called? Tongue tie and different things. So it wasn't even like I could be like, I'll do every other one. My husband, like, no, I had to physically feed her. She could latch on, but she could not take a bottle. So all these things you don't plan for, right? Right. You don't plan for. And then of course there's a sort of like 10 years later, 20 years later or whatever, like, is it really okay now, right? There's a hypervigilance. Yeah, when do you relax? Right, when are you supposed to relax? Like when you're a new mom being sent home, like your baby's low birth weight, so keep an eye on that, goodbye, right? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to manage that and keep it from taking over? It's a wonder any of us make it through the first year. I mean, it really is, honestly. And everyone's experiences are so different. And it's funny. I mean, we talk about these things. And sometimes when we're talking about the book, I feel like I have to jump in and qualify and be like, it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all the bad no, stuff. No, no, no. It's not. It's a very funny book. Yeah. But it, these are a large part of why I wrote it was because I wanted to talk about this stuff, like the kind of darker stuff and the scarier stuff, because 
that's the stuff that I don't feel like gets a lot of open conversation and gets a lot of attention. And I, it's so important to me to normalize, like if you're super anxious or if your pregnancy was awful or just saying like, I hated being pregnant. Like I love being a mom. I love my kids, but I hated being pregnant. And that doesn't mean like, they're not the same thing, right? You can hate pregnancy. No, it's so validating. Your book is very validating because it is for anybody, which is everybody who has experienced both sides of the motherhood experience. Of course, it's wonderful. And of course, it's hard. And of course, it's weird. And of course, it's crazy. But we don't often get to talk about that, let alone have that experience reflected back to us as mothers. Did you set out to become a writer about parenting? And at what point were you sort of like, this is I have something to say here. Hmm, That's a good question. So I guess no, in the sense that when I started writing, I wasn't thinking about kids. I wasn't thinking about motherhood. And so I wrote about other things. I've been writing since I was maybe, I mean, I have a piece of, this is (laughs) so funny, but I have a piece of paper from when I was like five years old that says, when I grow up, I'll be a freelance writer. And the thing that makes me laugh is the word freelance, because I'm like, freelance. what did that mean? And then I think my mom or my grandma was like, I think you knew you didn't want a boss. And I'm like, but at five, I don't, someone must have explained it to me what that meant. So I don't even remember when I started writing. I remember when I started writing personal essays was in high school and I was like 15. And so it definitely wasn't motherhood and parenting focused at that time. It was just life and being a teenager and all that stuff. And then, you know, going through university, I wrote for different papers and magazines and fell into a job in journalism, which was great because my degree was not in journalism. My degree was, I studied law. So when I had kids, suddenly that was the thing that was top of mind. And it was, it has continued to be top of mind for the last 12 years because I just don't know how other things I like to talk about and other things I write about, but now everything goes through this filter and this frame of like me as a mom. And it's not the only thing I am, but it would be, I think, silly for me to ignore the fact that it's a big part of who I am and it's a big part of how I view the world. Sorry, I'm tangenting for a second, but like the book I'm working on now, that's not out yet. I have an essay on abortion and the essay is on kind of like, you know, being younger and being like, yeah, of course I'm pro-choice. That's how I feel. And then having kids and feeling like almost radicalized about like now that I've had children and I've gone through these pregnancies and I've had a miscarriage and I've had two births and raised two babies, I feel so much more strongly about women having like control of their own bodies and autonomy and all of this stuff. And so it's like, no, my position didn't change, but the reality of what my position meant and what it, the impact on people and like just having gone through pregnancy, childbirth, motherhood. I didn't expect it to make me care so much more deeply about some of these issues with like women's rights and women's bodies. So stuff like that, like I could have written an essay on reproductive rights, you know, 15 years ago, it would have been an absolutely different essay, even if the the crux of it was like the same, you know, position, same side of the issue. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it totally makes sense. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Aaron Pepler, author of Send Me Into the Woods Alone. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. 
I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. So Erin, let's talk about the title. Your essay collection is called Send Me Into the Woods Alone. I think anybody listening is like, yeah, I know that instinct, that fervent passing wish. But tell us why you called your essay collection that. So that was something that it was really important to me that that was the title of the book because it's the title of one of the essays. And I felt like it summed up my whole position on motherhood, which is like, sometimes you want to escape, but like people I thought would know it was tongue in cheek. And I felt like if you don't get that it's tongue in cheek and that you're wanting to, like, it's not wanting to escape your family and live in the woods forever and never see your kids again. It's that moment of like, everything is overwhelming or your kids are being just ridiculous or everyone is pulling you or you're touched out or all those things. And you're just like, Oh my God, like send me away. Like I just want to run into the woods. And it's that passing thought. And then you go, okay. And then you're back with your family and you love it because they're your happy place and they're the best thing in the world. But I don't think any of us have had kids raised kids and not had a moment of like, dear God, send me anywhere, anywhere, Mm -hmm. but this Mm -hmm. kitchen. (laughs) It reminds me of what we were talking about at the beginning that that's, but you're not supposed to feel that way, mom. So please don't tell me that. Please don't tell me you're not loving being pregnant. I don't really want to hear that. Please don't tell me you sometimes wish you could, you know, go off the grid I know. and never be seen again for five minutes. I don't really want to hear that, mom. You're supposed to think and behave a certain way that is always 100% positive and others focused. And so I think, you know, it's kind of the perfect title for. Yeah, this is going to cover all sides of this experience. I'm glad you think so. Whenever somebody enjoys the title, I think, oh, I think you're going to like the book just because I'm like, you get it. If you get it, then you get it. And hopefully you'll get the rest of it. And it's just that feeling of we shouldn't be ashamed of being like, sometimes we just want to run away. Like how many moms talk about like, oh, if I could only just rent a hotel room and stay in it alone for 48 hours in silence and just not cook for anybody or clean anything or have hands on me or have people wanting to make me to make decisions. Like, you know, that decision fatigue you get as a mom and as a parent, just all of those things. And it doesn't mean you don't love your life and that you don't love your family. It's just 
so normal and so deeply human to need a break from something that is 24 hours a day and all consuming and is not just like mental, but like deeply, deeply emotional. And I couldn't care about anything more than I care about my kids. It's, it would be impossible. So to put as much of my heart and my mind and my life and my hours of my day into my children and to not need a break from that, like seems pretty unrealistic. <laughs> yes. And in your case, you talk in the book about a move to the suburbs for your family. That was the right thing to do. And here we are. <laughs> and here you are. For and where your kids were born in New York City, is that right? No, in Toronto. Oh, in Toronto, because you said at some point, oh, you said Mount Sinai. I'm like, you're talking about being in the city and then Mount Sinai. I'm like, is she in New York City? It's so here too. I mean, it makes sense. And then you moved to the suburbs for your spouse's job was sort of the leading factor in this change. And tell the story about your three-year-old's reaction a couple of months into the move. Yeah. So the one thing is it wasn't the job. The plan was for him to get a job in the suburbs. It was financially motivated because I'm sure anyone who lives in a big city can know. So to get a detached house in Toronto, you're looking at kind of a minimum of like $2 million. And to get uh, like a decent semi, honestly, you're actually, I might even be wrong at this point. It might be $2 million for a semi. It's very, very, very expensive is what I mean. And I had my kids fairly young. My husband and I got married when I was 25. I was pregnant like eight or nine months later, had my daughter when I was 26, and my son 19 months after that. So I am less than 10 years out into my career and I have two children. My husband's the same age as me. We're like 10 months apart. We don't have $2 million to buy a house. And at that point, the suburbs were a lot more affordable. They've actually, they're jacked up now too, but this was eight years ago. So we moved out to a suburb that's about 40 minutes outside of Toronto. And objectively, it is a lovely place. It's a great place to raise kids. It's on Lake Ontario. There are great schools. It's a lovely community. I live on a court with beautiful tree-lined driveways. Like everything is picture perfect. I had a meltdown. I could not adjust to like, it's taken so long. And even at this point, we've lived in our house almost nine years. I'm at a place of like acceptance. Like I still don't love the suburbs. I still have this idea of, well, when we don't need space for a family of four, we're just going to go back to the city because we'll just be able to get a small place, which is what we lived in before. Like we were renting an apartment. I was very happy, but it was difficult to live in the apartment with the four kids not just because of the size, because I know a lot of people do it, but I write about this in the book, The Apartment um, Got Mice. And then it was just something where I was like, I have a newborn, I have a daughter who's not even two yet. And then every morning I wake up and there's like mouse poop on her high chair and rent has skyrocketed. So if I go to get a different apartment, it's going to be more than a mortgage on a four bedroom house in the suburbs. And why would I do that to my family? Because I want to stay in the city. And my husband was looking at job opportunities in the suburbs anyway. So yeah, we moved to the suburbs and then he was commuting because he hadn't got that job in the suburbs yet. So he was commuting back into the city every day. And my daughter thought that we had moved to the suburbs without him. So he would leave at 630. Because she saw so little, right? Go explain that. Yeah. Yeah. So basically she would wake up in the morning and he'd be gone for work already because he would take an hour long go train, which is like the commuter train. And then he would come home at dinner time and he would be there for dinner. He'd be there for bedtime. And then she'd wake up again in the morning and he'd be gone. And bedtime when you're that little, right? is like 637 o'clock. So they were seeing like an hour a day of their father. So she, when she became more verbal, was basically like, is daddy going to visit us? And I was like, well, daddy lives here. And she's like, but is he going to visit us again this weekend? And I was like, he lives here. This is his home. Like he lives in this house. Like I'm married to daddy. And she truly thought that 
he was visiting, he'd stayed in the city and we'd moved away and it broke my heart. It devastated my husband. And then he really amped up his job search at that point. And then he got a job about 20 minutes away in the suburbs. And, and that was no longer an issue because they saw a lot more. And, you know, kids get older, their bedtimes get later. It's such a funny story. And believe me, I mean, we raised our kids in the city so that my spouse could see more of our kids. And it was often, you know, 20 minutes before bed. It doesn't necessarily like the length of the commute. If you live closer, you just work more, right? It's sometimes hard, hard to break that cycle. But it's a gift in a way that you're daughter's innocent understanding of the situation reflects back to you like, oh, this is as hard as you think it is. You have moved to the suburbs and are isolated and are now probably doing it pretty much yourself, so much so that your daughter thinks it's just it's just you now. It's a gift in a way, right? They're like, oh, this is as hard as I thought it was. Because once again, as you say in the book, I'm in this beautiful house. I have absolutely no right to complain. You, you know, castigate yourself for the things that you are complaining about, even to yourself, right? That the house was a lot of work, all of a sudden you had to drive everywhere. You didn't want to complain about it or be seen as complaining. And then when you do, you're told, we'll have some perspective. Some people don't have a house. Like, you're right, but I can also be stressed that this has completely changed how our family operates. Absolutely. And I didn't drive before we moved to the suburbs. Like I lived in Toronto, which I think is has the same kind of vibe as New York in the sense of you don't need to own a car. A lot of people in Toronto do, but I did not. So for me, getting around to two young kids under the age of two meant like taking a double, double stroller out on like the subway or whatever else, streetcars. And then suddenly I had to learn how to drive with two children in the car. And it, that was a huge anxiety for me. I hate drive. I still hate driving. I don't drive on the highways. I'm like a little grandma. I putter around. Like I get groceries. I go to the pharmacy. I go to friends' houses. But if we leave the city, I either like Uber or I take a train or my husband drives. Like I still don't drive. And it's been nine years. And I have no intention to learn how to drive on the highway. I don't care if it makes me a little dependent baby. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to do it. It scares me. So that was wild. Was suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm in a suburb where I don't want to be I can't get anywhere because we didn't have a car the first six months. Um, we were taking our time trying to figure out like which one we wanted, how much money we wanted to spend. So I would be like, oh, I'll take them for a walk. And then I'd just walk these empty suburban streets with everyone that like gone to work. The kids were in daycare. Like I would walk for 15 minutes and just see like a grocery store in the distance, like a gas station because the suburbs, it's so like you're in subdivisions, right? So whereas when I lived in the city, I would open my door and it was like restaurants, coffee shops, the little farmer's market, the bookstore, the little baby play centers, the library, like all these things. So it was very jarring, but it was that sense of you cannot complain about this because look how beautiful your life is. You have two healthy, beautiful children. Your husband treats you so well. You just bought your first house and it's lovely in a lovely community, a lot of people would really, really kill to live in. And like, how dare you be sad about that? And so I felt very ashamed. Like, I just felt like I'm like, I'm a garbage person for not being really just grateful every day. And I was grateful in the sense of, I was like, I recognize how privileged it is to be able to just go, oh, rent was too high, but we could go buy a home in the suburbs. Like, oh, what an awful solution that was, like to go buy a nice house. Um, I was very aware of it on paper, but it didn't change how sad I felt or how lonely I felt or how out of place I felt because everyone knows, like you can say to someone, like, where would you like to live? Are you like a rural person? Would you love, is your dream to live on a farm? Is your dream to be in New York City? Or would you really like the suburbs? We all have an answer to that question because it's like, where do you fit in? Where do you feel like safe and comfortable and at home and like the most like yourself and where there's opportunities for you. And for me, it's the city. And so not living there, even almost a decade later, I'm like, 
I feel like I'm just, this is a chapter where I'm, I'm somewhere because it's a good choice for my family. I don't feel like it's the place for me. So in retrospect, I'm like, of course I was sad about that. It was hard, but yeah, I felt like garbage person. <laughs> what has the reaction to this book been? So this book has been out for a little while in Canada and it's, it's out in the States too, although it's been more broadly publicized, I would say in Canada. And so it's nice to be able to introduce this to the mostly American listeners today. But what has been the reaction to this book? What have you heard from the moms who have read this book? It's been really great because it's been a lot of what you said, which is just they feel really seen and they feel really validated. And I'm really happy that it's making people laugh because there is a lot of humor in the book. And that is how I like to approach things is when things are serious, I'm serious about them. But a lot of things in motherhood, it's it's good to laugh about and we can and should laugh about it. And I do. Um, so that has been the most validating thing. And it means so much to me because I didn't write it to like win book awards or have people tell me like, oh, my sentences are beautiful. Those are nice sure. things. That would be cool. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I, I wrote it really, really as this, like, I wish these are the things people had told me. I wish these are the things that had been said a little louder or out loud at all when I was young and having children. And I just felt so like, oh, I'm the only one that feels this way or thinks this way. And I'm like defective for feeling like that. So going into it with that mentality of like, I'm going to reach people and then having people reach out to me and say it meant something to them. It's just like, that's everything to me. And it's like you said, it's been out in Canada for over a year. It's been out in the States. Uh, the difference is because I'm Canadian. Like if you walk into a bookstore in Canada, it's like on shelves pretty much everywhere. It's sold a lot of copies in Canada. In the States, I'm kind of like warehoused. So like you can get it from Barnes and Noble, but if you walk into the store, it's not going to be there. Like they would order it in. It's in the Barnes and Noble warehouse. And same thing with a lot of the independent bookstores. It's on shelves at some of the indies, but a lot of the time it's in those distribution centers. So if somebody wants it, so I, I don't have the same visibility in the States. So I'm very happy you had me on because I, I hope I'm like, even if one person finds it, that would be so exciting. Here you go. <laughs> I'm going to put a link in the show notes to where you can buy Send Me Into the Woods Alone right from where you're listening right now. But Aaron, tell us where our listeners can find you, what you're up to next, and, and everything that they might want to know about you. Well, I'm working on my second book right now. There is no pub date right now because I am a slow writer. It Two. takes me a long time. So this <laughs> another is, thing we haven't gotten. I'm not going to knock out another book next year or anything like that, but I am like diligently working on another book that I'm proud of so far and I'm excited about. You can find me on Instagram. It's just at Erin Pepler and Twitter at Erin Pepler. And on Facebook, it's at Erin Pepler Writer. And I have a website, erinpepler.com, uh, that maybe don't go to because do I update it? Not that often. <laughs> Not as much as you update the social media. I feel you. Yeah, but it exists. It does exist. <laughs> we'll put links to all of that in the show notes as well. Erin, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. 
So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.